300 out of 365 days a year try to pass this test. One, impact. What have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? Two, growth. What did I do today to make it more likely someone would learn something? And that could be you. Three, courage. What did I do today that I thought might not work, but tried it anyway? Four, empowerment. What did I do today to help someone else move closer to a goal? Five, class. How did I elevate a situation I could have escalated today? And elevating means trying to succeed, while escalating means trying to win. And the last one, which is actually the foundation upon which all others need to be built, self-respect. A commitment to recognizing that when you are empty, you have nothing to give. And the question was, what have I done today to be good to myself? Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. So, do you consider yourself a leader? Well, here's the reality. Every single person listening to the show is a leader of some sort or another. And today's guest, Drew Dudley, really takes and drills down significantly about why a lot of times we have sort of discounted our influence in the importance that every moment in our lives with everybody we interact with has really been reduced rather than embraced. And so I'm just really encourage you. Drew is a 250,000 downloads of his YouTube or his TEDx talk on YouTube, pardon me, as well as being the author of the book, This is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. Now, during our conversation, one of the things that really occurred, and this is our heart at CRG, every single person listening to this, not only are a leader, but you have a purpose, a calling, an assignment, and a lot of times it's the external pressures or misunderstanding of our directions that gets us into a little bit of trouble as far as doing things that we don't really love. I mean, all the stats are clear. So my encouragement is we have a new e-course. Now, depending on when you're listening to this, it might not be as new, but it still warrants and it's important. And that e-course is on what do you really value? You know, what would it mean if you could make the right decision every time? What would it mean if the decisions were based on what's most important to you, not from a self-centered point of view, but from a self-honoring point of view? Do you know somebody that's really struggling with clarity and direction, and you know that they're not feeling fulfilled because they're busy doing what everybody else wants and their expectations rather than their own? So my encouragement is look at the show notes, is go to crgleader.com, go to online courses around what do you really value or the values preference indicator, and that course will really be a, a baseline. It's our second most popular tool. It's every time I do this workshop in a live setting, it's transformational. It doesn't matter what age a person is because we know the stats. 80% of people are disliking what they do from mildly irritate to loathe. So the odds are four to five people listening to this, that course will help you get clear for your own benefit and say, what do I really value? And then what do I need to do about it to get to the next level? So as always, thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. If you like what we're doing, please pass it on. Leave a positive comment on whatever platform you're listening on, as well as just give us any kind of feedback of things that we can talk about or would serve you better. And thank you again for being part of the tribe. We're trying to do our best to be able to serve you so that as the listener, when you finish that episode, you, there are some kind of actionable ideas or a story or a journey that's really encouraged you. So thank you for being part of Secrets of Success. Now, here's our guest, 
Drew Dudley. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, you guys know that one of the core elements at my heart is just this whole issue about leadership or, quite frankly, the lack of it that's out there. And today, we have an expert, one of the top experts in the world around leadership, Drew Dudley. Drew, welcome to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. And that was really nice. Thank you. <laughs> well, just, I mean, I'm you have this great... Right now. Well, well, uh, well, exactly, exactly. Well, you know what? Just stand in it for a moment. Uh, just accept that. I'll and you know, you've written the book. This is this is day one, a practical guide to leaders, leadership that matters. We'll get the, to that in a moment. But as we always do on Secrets of Success, we want to kind of get to know, you know, who are we talking to? What's the journey of the author, the expert that we have interacted with? So, Drew, what's your story? Well, I mean, where did you grow up and what were some of the dynamics um, in your early life? You know what? I think if you ask anybody who loves what they do, you'll usually get, when you ask them how they got there, the most common answer I find is, I have absolutely no idea. And so my voyage is, is pretty similar. I grew up an hour and a half outside of Toronto, Canada, a little town called Peterborough, which is a about as generic a town of 65,000 people as you get. So think of every town an hour and a half from a major city with about 65,000 people in it, and that's where I grew up. And uh, I went away to school on the east coast of Canada planning to be a lawyer because when you're young and in high school and you get good grades, if you like science, you're supposed to go to med school, and if you don't like science, you're supposed to go to law school. And well, of course. I, yeah, of course. I bought into that. So. I, you know, took a look at the top ranked schools in Canada and said, all right, let's do this. Let's just apply to the top five because that's how it goes. And because everything in my life was about looking good on paper. Back then, really, and I think a lot of young people fall into this trap, most of the rewards that you can get when you're a kid are externally focused and they come from pleasing adults. So how well Mm. do you give teachers what they want? And depending on how well you give teachers what they want, your parents respond to that, et cetera. And Mm. so most of what I did in my young life was to look good on paper. What extracurricular can I get into? What award can I win? What scholarship can I earn? Because all that looked great on a resume. And my whole life was, you know, like sort of predicated on the idea that you have from the time you begin kindergarten until the time you are finished university or college. And let's face it, for most young people over the last 20 years, the idea that you have to go to post-secondary education if you want any form of life is hammered in. And so that's mm. sort of the uh, approach that I took. Everything I did in this world was uh, for people I hadn't met yet. And I think that's something to, to I try to get people to focus on, particularly when I'm lucky enough to speak to young people is we tend to put a lot of focus in our lives when we're young on people we haven't met yet. And so when so I'm in high just, school, Drew, just stop for a second. What do you mean by that? People, we're focusing on people we haven't met. Just get a grounding yeah. for the listeners what you're, you're trying to um, communicate on that. Basically, when I was in high school, everything that I did was to impress university admissions counselors. And I had never met any of them. And when I get to university, everything I do is to try to impress grad school admissions counselors, who I haven't met yet. 
but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm compiling this list of things on paper that I know will be good for them. Then what you do towards the end of your education is everything that you're doing is to try to impress that person who's going to select you for an interview, give you that interview. We get to our jobs and everything we do is geared to impressing that person who's going to give us the promotion or move us to a better position at another organization. And a lot of all of this is geared towards, okay, if you do a good enough job, go to good enough schools, get yourself a stable enough life, then somebody out there will say, all right, I'll marry this person. And we have, most of us haven't met yet. When you're a kid, most people haven't met that person either. And so really my life was driven by looking good on paper for people that I had not yet met. Mm -hmm. And that, when it started to shift, when certain things occurred, I lost a friend to cancer, we lost a friend to a car accident in university, you start to see how the reaction to those losses are so powerful. And these are not individuals who, at least in terms of looking impressive on paper the way I was trying to, these were C students. And these weren't the president of every single extracurricular organization. They were simply extraordinary people who lived their life every day to have an impact on the people around them. And I wasn't doing that. And so that started to shift. I got heavily involved uh, in uh, charitable organizations, eventually being the national chair of a couple here in Canada. That led to me doing a lot of workshops and trainings on different leadership talents, whether it was building teams, dealing with conflict, uh, effectively planning events and managing complex activities or, or um, initiatives. And the, the dean at the University of Toronto spotted me at one of these and, and I guess really liked what he was hearing, sat me down and said, we want to create a leadership program that focuses less on theory and more on things that students could actually do on a daily basis to help them recognize and grow their leadership. That led to 10 years of making that vision a reality at the University of Toronto. Just, over, just an overnight success like everybody yeah. else thinks you, oh, you it's showed a, up it's to a do, long right? Trek. Yeah, and, and I think eventually what happened was I was asked to speak at so many different places on the side that eventually I loved it so much and the only thing standing in the way of me doing it full-time was I had a full-time job, which I loved. And I loved the students with whom I worked eventually the environment became toxic with the addition of, you know, one of those coworkers, one of those people in the higher up that were fundamentally different values than I did. And mm -hmm. that just sort of gave me the final push that I needed to, to leave the university, found my own organization. And the bonus for me is that, you know, all of six weeks after I left my job, three weeks actually, I delivered a TEDx talk that ended up going viral. And it just so happened that in the audience at that talk was, you know, a speaker's agent who said, you know, we can make this something that you do full time. And that was 10 years and a thousand speeches and a book and a lot of air miles ago. So that's sort well, of there the you go. You just, you just showed up and like the next day it was all there for you. Yeah. It's hard to believe that that <laughs> it was 15 years ago next week, two weeks from now, that I did my first ever leadership speech when someone specifically asked me to talk about leadership mm -hmm. for the first time as the reason I was on stage as opposed to a training seminar of some kind. And it just changed everything. And so it's been, it's been really something. Well, congratulations. And we're going to delve into the book here in a minute, but I want to digress because sometimes as a host, I don't want to miss these gems that 
guests have left on the table and nobody picked them up along the way. So first of all, isn't it ironic, Drew, that you were teaching leadership and it was the leadership at the university that made you leave? <laughs> Don't well, you find that funny? Uh, I mean, yeah. not funny, but just ironic that in a dynamic place where you're trying to teach leadership about embracing and supporting others, that it's that whole philosophy of somebody else. And I've been in the academic world and it's just, you know, the political abyss. Uh, yeah, and what it, it does to people. There are dynamic minds at universities, but as a general rule, universities and colleges aren't particularly dynamic places or uh, innovative places. It's, you know, the, the challenge is that most of the people who run universities have never been anywhere but university. You know, they did their undergrad, they did their master's, they did a PhD, they moved up. And there's a stagnation and a bubble and a self-absorption and importance at a lot of universities that, you know, when, you're, when you feel that you're already in the pinnacle of human intellect, why change anything? And you're rewarded pretty strongly for that, too. So one of the challenges with anything is it takes an awful lot of awareness and guts to rise to the top of a system and then look back at the system and say, this is fundamentally flawed because it's rewarded you, it's put you at the top. So that's why a lot of systems perpetuate with the problems they have is because why would someone who has risen to the top of a system not like that system? Why do they think it should change? And it takes a special kind of person to do it. And I didn't mm -hmm. see a ton of that at the university. So, you know, the management as opposed to the leadership uh, is sort of, there's a big difference between leadership and management. And, you know, just because you have a title that makes you responsible for making sure the world doesn't end within an organization doesn't mean that you actually do any leadership within it. Mm. Oh, so true, so true. Man, we could have a long show just about that. <laughs> and I, I want to digress one more time. So uh, we were talking earlier about, you know, growing up in these external sort of pressures to become somebody else, to do something else. What can you say to our audience today about about how do I kind of, I mean, I'm 15 years old and mom and dad want me to do this. And by the way, my wife was an academic coach at the university. Actually, she is at a new one now. I mean, lots of times students in her office in tears because they're taking courses they hate because mom and dad said, you're going to do this. So, you know, how do I honor this sort of parent authority dynamic who are paying for my university, this whole thing that I need to do university, yet at the same time, I'm really not going down a path that I'm passionate about. How would you coach even those of us that are adults in sort of pushing back on this and still, you know, respecting the people around us. Yeah, it's a real challenge. And it's getting worse as, one, the cost of university increases to the point where basically no young person on the planet can work incredibly hard for three or four months at a summer job and pay for university. And, you know, really the problem is higher education has become a bit of a scam. And what's happened is you've got the business world and the universities and in many ways are in the symbiotic relationship where the business world says, all right, you get to vet them for us. If this job requires high school intelligence, the number one way to make sure that who you're hiring has high school intelligence is to pick a university graduate because maybe they weren't actually all that capable in university, but we only need high school. And so what happens is basically the universities are saying to students, without us, you have no success. And so you need to give us the equivalent of the down payment on a house 
and we won't even guarantee return for that, and the return that you're going to get for it is delivered by somebody else. That's an incredibly disempowering, it's a bad deal. It's a terrible deal. If someone mm. walked up to you and said, give me 100 grand, and I won't guarantee a payoff, but if there is a payoff, it also won't be me who delivers it to you. But without me, you can't get it. That's an unbelievably disempowering concept or premise upon which to put people through the doors. It's a big business. Drew, Drew I didn't know how much I would love you by the like <laughs> a few minutes into the show, you know, and, and not really to diss universities because my kids just came through and they had a great time. But the reality is, is that it has become completely dysfunctional in, in incestuous, hasn't it? Yeah, universities, and I have no problem dissing universities. Like, here's, maybe I should say that, but I guess ultimately let's look at it this way. Half of the students I, I worked with at the University of Toronto should not have been in university. And I'm not saying they're dumb. Let me be very clear on this. I am not saying that they are incapable of doing university. I'm saying it was pointless for them. It was a hoop they had to jump through, and an expensive one. If you wanted to be a doctor, lawyer, architect, engineer... Yeah, you need to go to university. But when you don't know what you want, uh, why is it that you have to go through a system that's entirely different than the real world, that's incredibly insular and not particularly tied well to the real world because it's run by people who never lived in it for the most part. So ultimately, the challenge is, is that these people would have been better off going out, entering the workforce, trying new jobs, mm. failing at jobs, going to new things, and getting paid the whole time and not going into debt. But what's happened is everybody of a certain intellect, and that's just it. It's not even a certain intellect. People who don't go to university aren't stupid people. In some cases, they're the smartest ones we've got right now. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, they weren't getting served by university except sending, spending four more years and a whole bunch of money getting into there. But again, I don't want to crap on universities, but the fact is they're being filled with people who probably aren't really benefiting from being there, except that because everyone goes now, it's become an expectation. Not everyone goes. My apologies. A huge percentage of people don't. But because the highest paying echelons of our society are reserved for the most part, the entry into those or the entry into the past to the highest paying jobs in our society are limited for the most part, the access to them to university graduates. University is limited to people with a certain amount of money or certain access to loans, certain levels of socioeconomic ability. Uh, mm -hmm. People are limited because they come from education systems that are systematically uh, unequal, particularly if they come, they are people of color, immigrants coming through systems that are not as well funded, not as well cared for the education systems. And what happens is the same way with leadership that people start to simply internally separate themselves from the idea that they have a right to it. That happens with edu education, it happens with leadership, it happens with uh, lives of success and lives of worth. People from a very young age have those things separated from their own identity because of the way that the world is structured. And so, yeah, I'm a little rough on higher education. I think it's one of the most liberating, empowering, and important systems in our society, but I also think it's one of the most dangerous and limiting. From the very young age, it gives examples of concepts on this planet. And whatever, whatever concepts, whatever examples you're given of an idea, let's take leadership, for example. Whatever initial example you're given to demonstrate an idea, it not only shapes, but limits 
how you perceive that concept for the rest of your life. And what I worry about is there are certain things that are learned even though they're never explicitly taught in the education system. And I want to be clear, I don't blame teachers for this. You can have really good people in a system, but if the system is flawed, the problems will always be perpetuated. And so ultimately, most of the examples we use for leaders when we're young are giants, presidents and scientific groundbreakers and people who conquer empires. And as a result, most people do not see themselves as those individuals. They see themselves as something other than a leader. And when leadership is reserved for giants, it causes most people to devalue the leadership that they demonstrate every day because they don't see it looking like the examples they were given. And we also should bear in mind that most of the examples for a long time that were given were all supposedly straight white men. And the impact that has had not only on other straight white boys in terms of their concept of what a leader looks like, it has been far more damaging to everyone who isn't a straight white young person when they start learning about leadership because even if they say, well, those individuals have accomplished so much more than I am, I shouldn't call myself a leader, at the very least they look like them. But when we add that, well, they've accomplished so much, that's more than I can do, when we add that to anyone who's not a straight white person, there's even more of a gap that forms there. And so these are some of the untaught and challenging lessons that are learned early on, right, right down to if you want to have a successful life, you better go to a university or college and you better pay for it because that's required. It, it's the same idea with a leader is, you know, looks like this and sounds like this. And if you're not that, then, you know, you can stop. Oh, I get that. A leader. I get that. Just so you know, the stats. And then, of course, this podcast goes around the world and, you know, mostly in North America, but around the world is 70% of Canadian parents want you to go to university because I do career development speaking and only 2% want you to go to a trade school. So if, you know, I'm going to go and be a carpenter or electrician or a plumber, oh, you can't do that, but maybe that's what I need to be doing. So I get it. I understand it. Now, I never answered think, your question. <laughs> which <laughs> Sorry, question don't, was that? Don't, don't let me forget to answer your question, my friend. Is what do we do about that? I'm so sorry, before I forget, when it comes to parents with the pressure of doing this, I think one of the important things to always remember is at the foundation of every dysfunction, interpersonal or professional or organizational, there is a fear. People are afraid of something. And I've had a lot of students come into my office and say, I love this, I like this idea, but my parents, my parents, uh, particularly first-generation Canadians. And one of the things I try to do is just get them thinking, what are your parents afraid of? Like realize that all of this pressure they're putting on you comes from fear. And we don't like thinking of our parents as being afraid. And so we don't necessarily consider that. But one of the most damaging things this society can see you as is a bad parent. And so parents are so afraid that their kids are going to make mistakes, that their life is not going to be better than theirs. So their, their children's lives will not be better than their own from the perspective of the parents, that they're terrified. And they're terrified that if they don't push and say go to university and, and make clear that their kids are going to screw up, their life is going to be awful, and they're going to be a bad parent. And they're going to have to live with that. The problem is that it's their children who take the brunt of their fear. And so what I say to parents is 
take a step back and realize that your control and pressure on your child is born out of your own fear of being a bad parent, and that's not fair. I say to their children, hey, realize that this is not your parents thinking you're stupid. This is not your parents thinking that you can't run your own life. It comes because they're super, uh, they're incredibly afraid that if you make a mistake, if your life is bad, that's their fault, and they're going to live with that, and they love you. And it's very rare to ever sit down with your parents, look them in the eye and say, what are you afraid of? And I think that being able to do that as a young person in an empathetic way, not in a get out of my life thing or this isn't fair, but to sit down with parents and say, I understand why you're pushing this. Let me ask you this. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? And which are you more afraid of? A, a young person who you know, does exactly what you want or, or creating someone who isn't capable of recovering from bad decisions. You know, which are you more afraid of? And I think that's a really good way to start, is to realize that this entire thing about parents pushing their kids and demanding certain things is born out of fear. And I think when both sides can realize that, we can have a more fruitful discussion, because any discussion that focuses on the fear that is the foundation of the dysfunction, as opposed to the behaviors that emerge as a result of that fear, the better off we're going to be. So don't forget, your parents are afraid, and that deserves empathy and compassion. But parents, realize that your fear is just generating more fear and restriction on your kids, and that a, a, a kid who's afraid of letting you down is not well-equipped for the world. Oh, for sure. I couldn't agree more, Drew. And when we think about the stats of my wife working at a university, is that the majority of kids that are, you know, 16, 17, 18, or even 19, all the research is clear. My reflective capabilities to really, really know what I want to do in my life is not even grounded till I'm nearly 19. And that's why, you know, first and second year students change their majors 45 times is because they're going through this consternation. It is completely natural. And then everybody says, you know, when you're 12 years old, what do you want to do for the rest of your life, Drew? Are you going to be a lawyer or what's the story there? And what's wrong with you? You don't. And how big is the list of stuff you know at 12, right? It's, I, one of the it is a ridiculous like, concept. It's a ridiculous yeah. concept. Yet. It's the same idea you're supposed to meet the person you're going to marry between the ages of 20 and 30. Like there are certain structures and timelines that control how we feel about ourselves and impact how we feel about ourselves based on where we are on the timeline and what things are supposed to have occurred by that point and how many actually have. So, Sorry, I Drew. I met my wife when I was 31, so I'm just hey, not normal. I try to tell my students, uh, the ones that I still work with, look, I didn't discover the thing I was born to do till I was 28, and I didn't fall in love for the first time till I was 38. And the problem is not knowing those things by a certain period of time causes a level of, uh, of worry and panic that I think leads to poor decisions. And so there's a, a certain timeline upon which we, we dictate our decisions. Okay, we make decisions in our lives based on this timeline we're supposed to stick to. And then you find people like you and I who have discovered but you only figure this out through experience, right? That that timeline is a crock. And what it does is that it's probably made our lives worse because we made decisions that did not make us feel fulfilled simply because we were chasing the timeline as opposed to uh, chasing what was best for us because we think the timeline is what's best for us. And I, I think that's dangerous. And of course, society always 
puts the sort of external pressure because they are, as you use the word, they're in fear for something. They're like, oh, okay, if I don't find somebody by the time I'm 28 or 30, then there is nobody. There are no, there, there are no buddies. You know, I'll, I'll mix up the English. Uh, but and the I reality think- is, is that there are people that are out there. And a lot of times, I mean, it used to happen in high school, right, Drew? Is the yeah. desperate guy never got the date? That, yeah. that was me. That was me in high school. The guy who never wanted the date and it was kind of a jerk. He always got the date and I said, "What's that about?" And it was <laughs> this person who was desperate. So I mean, our same thing with our lives when we can be comfortable in our own skin is what you're talking about. So let's transition a bit, Drew. And, and obviously, we could have an interview that's about twelve hours long. I get, I sense <laughs> that. When you did your TEDx talk and you were really establishing these principles in leadership, and by the way, audience, every single person listening to this, you are a leader of some form or another, your family, your friends, your volunteer group. It's not, as Drew said, the CEO. So all of us have this leadership role, even if it's just leadership of myself. So what were some of the principles you're teaching that are also in your book that really got people thinking about and saying, hey, listen, I want to hear from Drew on the stage and this is really transformational for me. So just share with the audience, you know, for our second half of our show about what those principles are that you are teaching. Sure. I think what we talked about for the last 10, 15 minutes is actually a pretty good reflection of the mindset I was trying to shift away from. And so that's the idea that we should evaluate ourselves, our success, our lives, our behavior over blocks of time okay, this is a 80-year life, and now I'm at year 28, and I'm supposed to have X, Y, and Z done. This is a four-year program, and I'm three years in, and I'm supposed to have been, you know, have accomplished X, Y, and Z. And what happens is we start to evaluate our lives and our leadership over blocks of time. How have I done this semester, this year, this five-year plan? And the real focus I wanted to get people understanding was if we evaluate our success over blocks of time, what we'll keep doing is expanding the block of time we look at until we're no longer happy with ourselves. Hey, I've had a really good year, but you know, the five years before have been stuck behind people. So if I look at the five-year outcome, I'm not where I should be. Hey, this hey, well, so a- hang on, that stop. Why do we do that? Where, where, where does this come from where we have this incessant dissatisfaction? Money. You know, I think we've really, from a very young age, been taught, this is one of those untaught lessons, that our, our worth as a person is in many ways evaluated by where we fall on the spectrum of financial compensation on this planet. And as such, a lot of what we do is in pursuit of getting ourselves to the highest point possible on the spectrum of financial compensation. And until we get there, we're always chasing a future version of ourselves. My work is focused on the idea that your leadership needs to be evaluated on a daily basis. Full stop. All right. It's, it's simply, how did you behave today? And what drives my work, the problem I'm trying to solve is that the vast majority of leadership on the planet comes from people who don't think that they're leaders. And so I wanted to start to change that because when I started at universities, I'm dealing with brilliant, driven, extraordinary people who add tremendous value to their communities and the people around them. 
and they won't call themselves leaders because they're not old enough yet. They don't have enough money yet. But if you just break it down and you look at how they behaved on a day-to-day -day basis, they were significantly better leaders than a lot of CEOs that I knew, than a, definitely a lot of politicians that I knew, because if you simply look at how they behaved each day, they had a higher percentage of impactful, powerful interpersonal behaviors than a lot of people who were considered leaders in our society. And so what I try to do is adopt a philosophy for people or teach a philosophy that says leadership is creating and executing a daily process to close the gap between the person you want to be and how you are actually behaving. Closing that gap is leadership. And recognizing the gap exists, recognizing that you're responsible for the gap being there, and acting in a way that closes it each day is leadership. It's a form of leadership to which we all can and should aspire. I am not arguing that everyone, when I say everyone can be a leader, I'm not saying everyone can or should be a CEO or has any interest in it, can or should be a president or a prime minister or has any interest in it. I am saying mm -hmm. that when you actively close the gap between the person you want to be and how you're actually behaving, that is leadership because generally the behaviors you take to close that gap add value to this world. It involves acts of leadership. And when I say moments of leadership, I don't mean moments of power or influence or being the guy on the podcast, right? What I mean is moments of compassion and generosity and empathy and kindness, empowerment. Those things are the most powerful things that most of us do on a daily basis. A moment of compassion or showing compassion to another human being or forgiveness or empowerment is not for the most part limited by how much money we have or how much education we have, where we fall on that spectrum of financial compensation. Basically, no one is limited in their ability to wield those powerful tools to impact other human mm -hmm. beings. They're, but we don't call them moments of leadership. We call them the little things. You know, you do the little things every day that makes the world a better place. And when we do that, we devalue moments of leadership. We let them pass by without recognizing them or celebrating them. And I think it's important to notice that the things that we, when we don't celebrate them, we don't feel good about them. And it's the things that make us feel good when we do them that we are driven to do every day. So when we fail to recognize those types of moments, the types of moments accessible to everyone as leadership, what we're effectively doing is we're removing leadership from our communities, from our lives, from the planet, and we need it. Mm -hmm. But we're, there's no shortage. Discounting. Yeah, there's no shortage of leadership on the planet. What we're doing is systematically ignoring most of the leadership in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. And so my focus is to say, no, leadership is in your daily behaviors. The day one approach to leadership, which of course is what the book's about, what I focus on, basically takes this premise. Every one of us wakes up in the morning having accomplished the exact same number of leadership behaviors. Zero. We're all there. Mark Zuckerberg, you, me, Steve Jobs when he was alive, Warren Buffett. I'm not even going to reference, usually I'd reference the President of the United States, but let's skip that right now. But ultimately, we all wake up at the exact same, having accomplished the exact same number of, of leadership actions. None. Which means that today, if you and I or the guy who cleans this condo engage in more moments of empowerment and growth and self-respect and courage and compassion, 
if we engage in more of those than Mark Zuckerberg, then we were a bigger leader than Mark Zuckerberg today. And we can, most of us will never get to the point where we have that kind of influence over millions of people, but all of us have an equal amount of, of ability to have influence over one person. And so that's how I, I concept of leadership is then let's actually come up with how we close that gap. We can't just, I don't want to just say on a broad context, you should do it. My work is focused on here's how. And that's really where we start. Because what I help people do is identify the values they want to stand for. And by values, I mean the criteria they want to use to make decisions every day. Identify those so you can effectively target them and you can actually give yourself proof that you live them every day. So the day what, what, one approach what, what would be a couple of examples for you, Drew, sure. uh, around well, those values? Well, ultimately, values are only values if you reference them when you make decisions. Uh, and I think that the example I like to use, if you really want to matter on a daily basis, and leaders matter to other people, and one of the biggest challenge, most challenging questions I ask other people that just stuns them every time is the question, why do you matter? People just blank at that question. Mm -hmm. And I talk to some of the best educated people on the planet, and I realize that in somewhere between 15 and 25 years of formal education, no educator ever asks them that question. And I think it's because what causes us to walk away from our leadership is that we hope to matter. We hope to matter, we hope to lead, and we hope to make a difference. What I want to give in terms of examples is you can't hope to matter. Hope's a powerful force, but it's a terrible strategy. So you got to plan to matter, plan to lead, and plan to make a difference. And the plan I help people with is pick a value. And the first one we ever did was a social experiment with a group of students. They came up with it. They said impact. Now, we use all kinds of value words to judge ourselves and others, and we have no idea what they mean. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, you can't use impact if you don't give me a definition. And it has to start with a commitment to, because this needs to be behavior-focused. So we took impact. The student said impact is a commitment to creating moments that cause people to feel as if they are better off for having interacted with you. And then we went out and we tried to do that. But it wasn't good enough. Just trying to do it, life got in the way. We forgot about it through the course of the day trying to do that. And so with the help of some psych professors, we leveraged the power of the unanswered question. And there's some psychological background to this, but the big overall summary is the human brain hates unanswered questions. If you want to make sure that you do something, turn it into a question rather than a goal. Mm -hmm. Because the human brain will work on a question, even if you're not consciously aware of it, until it finds one. And so what we did is we took our values and we turned them into questions. For instance, the impact one became, what have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? Because that question cannot be answered without having a really positive impact on someone. I cannot recognize how someone has made my life or the world better in front of them or by email or text, whatever it might be, because what I like about this process is it's just as accessible for introverts as it is for extroverts. There's no way they walk away not feeling better off about it. And it's not, did you recognize someone's leadership? That's a yes, no. It's how did you? And what that question did is it made us so much more aware of how much leadership surrounded us every day 
that we were recognizing and that the people demonstrating that leadership would never recognize. People who sold us hot dogs, people who drove buses, people who worked the front desk. Yeah, people who were our bosses as well. It made us so much more aware of how many of those surrounded us. It made us so much more aware of how many opportunities to recognize that leadership we were letting pass by every day. And it made us far less likely to continue to let those moments pass by because our brain was desperate to find an answer to that question. And so we did that for 30 so say, days. So for the listeners who are driving, say that question again slowly for people so they get it anchored. Sure. What have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? Think about someone over the course of your day, and I really say focus on the people who would never call themselves leaders. Who adds value to your life? Who adds smiles to your life? Who, when you interact with them, even if it's just for a moment on a lousy day, makes you feel a little bit better, a little bit more empowered, a little bit more motivated? Think about them and then tell them that. And use the term leader when you do. There are so many of them. And when we made that assignment part of our lives for 30 days, it's in the book, some of the stories that the students came back with, but their former coaches, their teachers, their best friends, their parents, the incredibly nice hot dog guy on our campus, they had created these powerful moments. And it was so effective that we added another question the next month and then another question. We eventually adopted the philosophy of what I call the leadership test. And the leadership test adopts this perspective that says, imagine if every night before you went to bed, you had to prove you deserved another day on this planet. Not at the end of a semester, not at the end of a year or a five-year plan or at the end of your life. Every single day you had to prove you deserved another day on the planet. Mm. And to prove it, you had to pass the leadership test. The leadership test was a test of six questions tied to six values that we wanted to define us as people, and we had to get three out of six every day. And if that was our reality, those questions would be non-negotiable. They wouldn't be questions you answered in between meetings or emails or picking up the kids. They would be non-negotiable. They would drive your behaviors. And because they're tied to core values that we wanted to stand for as people, what adopting that philosophy did was it prioritized our to-be list above our to-do list. And I think most of us have to recognize that our life, unfortunately, has often devolved into being driven by our to-do list. And our to-be list is one of those things we work on when we have time. Agreed. And so the leadership test, if you'll bear with me, to those who are driving, if you'd like to know the six questions of the leadership test, to get three out of six every day. Actually, we don't even do every day. We say 300 out of 365 days a year. Try to pass this test. One, impact. What have I done today to recognize someone else's leadership? Two, growth. What did I do today to make it more likely someone would learn something? And that could be you. Three, courage. What did I do today that I thought might not work, but tried it anyway? Mm -hmm. Four, empowerment. What did I do today to help someone else move closer to a goal? Five, class. How did I elevate a situation I could have escalated today? And elevating means trying to succeed. Well, escalating means trying to win. 
And the last one, which is actually the foundation upon which all others need to be built, self-respect. A commitment to recognizing that when you are empty, you have nothing to give. And the question was, what have I done today to be good to myself? That's six questions. Two are specifically designed to add value to other people. Two are specifically designed to add value to yourself. And two tend to add value to both. That's over if you pass it. If you pass that 300 out of 365 days, is over a thousand conscious pieces of value that you put out into the world that have nothing to do with your job, nothing to do with your paycheck, and everything to do with who you are. Those things don't go on a resume, but they do go into an identity, and they do go into a life of leadership. And that's kind of the approach, and, and the day one approach, and I mean, we've not to dive too far into it, that's a, a starter kit. The, the leadership test, those six questions. But ultimately, the work that I do is to help people figure out what their own values are, because you can't just ask, you actually have to go through a series of exercises, and then help people create their own personal leadership test. Because those six questions are great, and if you use them, your life's going to get better. But you're far more excited and fulfilled if you write your own leadership test, whether mm. it's three questions, four, five, six, or two, it doesn't matter. But my work is to help people create their own, but I use that as an example, and it's kind of like, here's where you can get started as you go through the process of developing your own. Well, all of the things that you're talking about, uh, Drew, you know, we concur with, and, you know, uh, I think you know Marshall Goldsmith and his work. I do. And so I was invited to an event in New York, and when we talk about some of the things there, he calls it the Western disease. When I get here, then I'll be happy. <laughs> and you were talking about that when I, and rather than I'm in the moment now, you will never get there because you're always here. And so um, SOS audience, what you're thinking about or pondering about as a, an audience member with Drew is to let that go and say, you only live in this moment. And then this whole idea of being versus doing is so critical about how, you know, what is my contribution at this moment? We uh, make a statement in our, our certification program, my ability to serve others is equal to or less than my own development. And so when we think about it, you're, you're getting people to think about their own development and what's possible. Now, Drew, we've already nearly run out of time, if you can believe it. I mean, it was just like, I think we just took one breath in that last 45 minutes as part of that process. So thank you for that. So before we get into sort of the closing remarks, how can people find out about you? Probably the best spot is drewdudley.com. That's D-R-E-W-D-U-D-L-E-Y.com. And that's got everything there from the book to the online uh, process you can do, right down to a whole bunch of videos that one, the TED Talk that started it all, the lollipop moment. And uh, somebody on this right now is thinking, oh, it's that dude. Yeah, I did a six-minute TED Talk on the power of a single moment. In this case, it was tied to the transfer of a lollipop in making an impact and, and the realization mm. that, you know what, the biggest impact we're going to have on this world will rarely have anything to do with our plans it will almost always be the result of the unplanned consequences of our everyday actions. And look, we actually don't just live in the moment. We live our whole lives. But the future moments in which we live are in large part determined by the individual moments we seize today. And so, yeah, we, we have to, life is not short. 
life is the longest thing you will ever do. But the whole idea is anything you want one day starts with a day one. It starts with non-negotiable behaviors that happen again and again. And instead of focusing on where you want to be or what you need to achieve to be happy, focus on what you want to do today to feel fulfilled. And if you string enough of those days together, the stuff that happens in the future will be fundamentally better. Mm, cool. Remind everybody the name of your book and title of your book, Drew. Sure. It's called This is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. It is yellow and sexy and available in fine bookstores everywhere and several sketchy bookstores in various places as well. Well, well hey, I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> now, Drew, as a, uh, before we have closing remarks from the host here, what's your final encouragement to the audience today? Think of someone in your life without whom you would not be where you are. And I'm assuming to some degree there's some place about where you are that is something you like, right? Or if you think back and be like, man, I'd be way better off. Just think about somebody, somebody in your life who empowered you, who gave you a moment of compassion when you needed it, who gave you a boost with no benefit to themselves. Think of one, reach out to them, and tell them that you still remember that moment. My guess is that most of them will not, but the power that comes from one being told you've had a powerful impact in someone's life is mm. incredible. But two, it's also a reminder to them that probably the biggest impact they're having in the world they're not paying attention to. And if we pay a little bit more attention to those moments, we create more of them consciously. And if we can move from unconscious benefit we're putting out there to conscious, eventually it becomes habit and then it becomes instinct. And that's the transfer we want to go through. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Drew. Thanks for uh, Mr. Drew Dudley hanging out with us today. Hey, thanks for having me. This was an absolute blast. Uh, you are welcome, sir. Well, Secrets of Success listeners, I actually would like you to, and I can't make, we can't make anybody do anything, but we can encourage you, is at the end of the show, when you turn it off, whatever it is, is think of somebody that you can reach out to and take Drew's challenge and reach out to them and thank them for whatever it is that they contributed, whatever that event was, whatever that moment was, and what would it mean if we can create this pay it forward kind of event as a result of the show? And so... A lot of people will actually be surprised, but you also encourage them. And what's interesting is, is you'll feel better because you've done it as well. Every single person listening to this show, you are a leader. You are making a difference. And so what kind of difference are you making out there? Thank you, as always, for spending your most valuable commodity your time with us if you like what we're doing please pass it on let other people know leave a positive comment on whatever platform you're listening on thank you for listening to secrets of success i'm your host dr ken keys thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us if you want to keep the momentum going log on to crgleader.com scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails you can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.